you know what happened in the first service? I forgot to do something really important. We made a decision as leaders that we were going to receive a re, uh, an offering for the, the relief in Turkey. And I didn't mention that to the first service, which was even more people there than here, the second service. So that's bad on me. But I will communicate via email. But what we're going to do, if you want to give to that, we have a missionary there in that country, and they've got churches going there, and they ha they're on the ground. They're in the midst of it. And so, you know, I'm not aware of anybody that we know that perished in the earthquake, but they are there to minister. And so they said, could you get resources to us so that we can start bringing water, food, all kinds of stuff to the people there. So if you want to give through our church, just make, it, just make it out to Turkey. This is on top of your regular giving. This is a special offering. You're going to make it out to Turkey. That money, all of it, will be sent via that missionary and all of their group that they're working with. They will start ministering to the people in need, okay? Does everybody make sense to you? So you just go to all of our, you can go to the information area, go to online servicing, how do we receive monies here in our church, and just put down Turkey, and all that money will go there. All right? Okay, I think I left my uh, advancer there, Patty. I did. You know, the pro you know, here's the problem with me. I got too many things in my mind. <clears throat> and I'm excited about the sermon. So, you know, all the other stuff for me is like, yes, I know I need to do this, this, and this, and this. And then, oops, forgot to bring the... But I didn't in the first service, but I forgot the offering. See, that's... <laughs> something's got to go up. Huh? Yeah. Dave Johnson, a San Jose police officer, in his book called The Light Behind the Star... He shares some of the incidences in his work. Now, how many know if you're a police officer, you're going to see all kinds of stuff? Everybody knows that. He said, I could see a couple standing in the front yard of a home. A woman was crying, and she was yelling at a man who was standing with his hands in the pockets of a greasy, his greasy overalls. And I could see these homemade tattoos on his arms, which usually was an indication that he'd probably spent some time in prison. When I was walking toward the two, I heard the woman demanding that he fix whatever he had done to the car so she could leave. His response was only a contemptuous laugh. She turned to me and asked if, he, if I could make him fix the car. The other officer came forward, and so we began to separate the couples. That's what they usually do in a domestic dispute, and they try to find a solution to their problem. I began talking to the man who told me his wife was having an affair and was leaving him, and, asked, and I asked him if they had gone for counseling, and he said, wasn't interested. He said he was only interested in getting back his things, which he said she had hidden from him. I asked the wife about his things, and she said she wouldn't give them to him until she got one of the VCRs. She said she only wanted one of the three they owned. The other officer walked over to the wife's car and looked under the hood to see if he could fix the trouble, and the husband walked over and took the coil out of his uh, pocket and handed it to the officer. He then told his wife that she could have the VCR if he could have his things. She finally agreed, went into the house, and I found out later that his things were the narcotics he was selling illegally. As the wife entered the house, I noticed two little girls standing in the doorway watching this drama unfold before them. They were eight and ten. Both of them were wearing dresses, both clung to a Cabbage Patch doll, and had two little suitcases at their feet. My eyes could not leave their faces as I watched the two people they loved tearing each other apart. The woman emerged with the VCR in her hand, walked to the car where she put it in on a crowded back seat, turned, told her husband where he could find his things, and they agreed to divide the other possessions equally. 
Then, as I watched in disbelief, the husband pointed to the two little girls and said, well, which one do you want? With no apparent emotion, the mother chose the older one. The girls looked at each other. Then the older daughter walked out and climbed into the car, while the smaller girl, still clutching her Cabbage Patch doll in one hand and her suitcase in the other, watched in bewilderment as her sister and mother drove off. I saw tears streaming down her face, and the only comfort she received was an order from her father to go into the house as he turned to go and talk to some friends. And there I stood, the unwilling witness to the death of a family. What a tragic story. But the issue in life is not, will we ever experience times of conflict? That's a given. But rather, how we respond to them. You see, you and I can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we're going to respond to what's happening to us. I think there's always somewhat of a naive sense of what unity is all about, or biblical unity. Uh, as a matter of fact, we tend to go from one of two extremes, where conflict becomes a way of life. In some families, that's all you see is conflict, or a state of denial where issues are never spoken. It's almost there's a silence about the skeleton sitting in the closet. Everybody knows about it, but nobody wants to touch that stuff. As I was reflecting on a passage of scripture regarding the story of what I consider a very dynamic domestic dispute, it made me realize that not all outcomes are easy. They're not all win-wins. There are losers. There's pain. But God can help you and I navigate through troubled waters of family conflict. Even in moments of discomfort, even in those moments of tension and difficulty in those relationships, God is at work in a very real way, if only we care to see him. Even when outcomes are not what we anticipate or desire, because that happens. We discover that God is present and can help us to embrace his promises that are there for us and provide a way to move forward. I think we need to remind ourselves that God will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us, even though other people do, and that happens. Everybody in this room have had moments where people have walked out of your life, and it's painful. But when it comes to marital conflict, we can feel sometimes overwhelmed because it's so close. You can't get away from it. It's right there. It's where you're living. There's maybe a deep sense of uncertainty. How can God work in what seems like an impossible situation? Or sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question, and I've had the question asked to me because I'm a pastor. Why does God let some relationships disintegrate? Why does he allow that to happen? You know, especially when the scriptures teach us that all things work together for good to those who love God. How many know, you like that scripture? I love that scripture. This is actually Romans 5.28. I mean, sorry, 8.28. But you know, it may not mean what you think that verse means. Because usually when I think of good, I think of what I think is the good, or what I think is what I'd like to see happen. That's the good I'm thinking, Right? All things work together for good. But let's keep going down that track of that scripture where it says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what's the purpose that God is calling us to? Well, if you keep reading in the next verse, it says, in order to conform you and I into the image of his son. So God's good 
is to make you like Jesus. Now, how many know that? That may not be what I had in mind when I think of that scripture. That the good he has in mind is to make me like Christ. Because, you know, a lot of times I think the good that I, is what I want, and sometimes what I want doesn't happen. Then I get disappointed and frustrated when God says, no, I'm going to use even the pain and the disappointment and the heartache and the brokenness in the situation to actually make you more like Jesus. And that's God's goal for all of our lives. And ultimately, that's the ultimate good. That's what we should all be looking for. In real life, well, here's the reason why God allows things to disintegrate. He doesn't overrule human freedom. He allows people to make choices in their lives even though it'll cost them down the road a lot of pain, and many times it costs people in the present a lot of pain. That's reality. I think we have to come face to face with reality because in the real life, we don't all live, quote unquote, happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. And that's why I love the scriptures so much because what we need to realize is that God is in the midst of the story. You know, I've been listening to this contemporary Christian song, God is in the story. He's actually in the details. He's in our lives. It's, you know, even though things may not be going the way we would like them to go, and that probably is true of many people in this room right now and people that are listening to me. You're, you're, you're going through experiences. You're saying, I'm not enjoying this. I thought God is a good God. I thought God loves me. And the answer is, he, yes, he's a good God. Yes, he loves you. But he has a plan that may look a little differently. And God does not overrule our free will, our choices that we're making. He doesn't step in and stop us. He lets those things occur, and it creates a lot of havoc many times in people's lives. But you know, one of the things we need to realize as God's children is that you and I probably grow the most from the most challenging moments in our lives. And ultimately, here's the good news, we're going to find our footing again. We're going to get on solid ground. We're not going to feel like we're drowning all the time. God's going to help us through this experience. And he will take us through those experiences in our lives. How many know right from the very beginning of human experience, we're introduced to sin? Right off the bat. Boom. How long, how long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before the sin entered into the world? When they disobeyed God. How long did that last? There's a lot of speculation. Were they there a few minutes? Were they there days, weeks, months, years? Who knows? We don't, doesn't say but we recognize that once sin entered the world, all kinds of problems develop, and it happened very fast. As a matter of fact, we see immediately a withdrawal from God, blaming of each other. Then you find a story of this two brothers, one envying the other to such a degree that he kills his brother. We find murder within the first four chapters. And by chapter six of Genesis, we find these amazing words that God looked at what he had created, and he said the imagination of men is continuously evil, and God made a decision to destroy the world. Wow, that's how bad sin is. I know we make light of it, but it's a major problem in our culture. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he died, to deal with the problem called sin. But today we're going to look at probably the most challenging area where sin affects us in probably the most profound way is in our homes. It's in our family relationships. It's in those situations that it's so difficult. And we're led immediately to our spiritual father. The Bible says that you and I are children of Abraham. We have the same faith that Abraham had, and so in a sense, he's the father of our faith. And I think as we look at the, one of these great patriarchs of the Bible, we discovered that Abraham had issues. Isn't that interesting? And he had issues in his home. He had family problems. And I think they're the most challenging kind of problems because you can't leave them. 
They're there. So in Genesis chapter 21, we're going to look at this chapter this morning. We're going to find this explosive moment that happens in his family. Eventually, you know, his family blows apart. I'm going to take a look at how that all came about and where was God in the story. And I'm going to show you God was there the whole time. Actually, God was actually directing through that experience in spite of the bad choices that the characters in the story make. And we'll find that out in a moment. So we're going to look at three movements in the story. And I've entitled this sermon, How to Navigate Through the Troubled Waters of Family Life. So let's take a look at these three movements. The first is this heightening conflict that somehow demanded resolution. It just, something had to be done. Now, we know that polygamy has its own devastating consequences. Now, I say to myself, listen, just trying to get along with one other person's challenging, you know? And especially when you're married, all the married people, you'll understand what I'm saying. We got people, we have... There's two genders here. And men and women don't think the same way. Has anybody figured that out yet? You know, there's actually books written about this. We're on a totally different frequency, you know. Now, I can't even imagine. You're just trying to get along with one wife to have more than one wife in your life at the same time. That has got to be over the top. I just can't imagine that, you know. And, so we, and we, we see that polygamy is not the best arrangement. Lots of conflict going on in those situations. And, you know, you, you look at the story and you go, well, yeah, but we don't have polygamy. Well, parts of the world do. And if we keep going in our current direction as a culture, we'll end up there too. Just watch. But here's what you need to know. It's not God's intention. And, you know, I, I noticed something when I was looking at this text. The dynamics in a polygamous relationship are very similar to the dynamics in a blended family. Because now you have a, maybe an ex spouse so you have this living wife but you're not technically married to her now but you still have you share these kids and you have all those kind of dynamics that we're going to find that are happening in the story we're going to look at so this is a perfect sermon if you're a blended family I'm not here to criticize you or to judge you I'm just going to say hey cue in there's some interesting dynamics that are happening here that you might be able to learn from and that's why I'm sharing this message because what happens in these relationships is you're fighting for two significant things, time and finances. You're looking for the father to be involved in the life of his children, but now he's caught between two families, basically, and there's tension that's happening. And we're going to see that in our story. We're picking it up in Genesis 21. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. How many know God's always gracious? So he's being gracious to share. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Oh, isn't it beautiful? God made a promise and he did exactly what he said he's going to do. How many know God's a promise keeper? He always keeps his promises. But we're going to find out sometimes they're delayed. And there's where we get into all kinds of trouble. Sometimes we try to help God out a little bit. And that usually makes things worse. Verse 2, Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time at the very time, let me say that again, at the very time God had promised him. We're going to find out timing is huge. How many realize that many times, many things that we do are legitimate, but when we do them in the wrong time, they become wrong? Anybody figure that out? I could just keep going down and talking about when we don't do things in God's timing, we're actually sinning. And we're making things more complicated for ourselves. So we got to be in step with God. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was 
Eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Good on Abraham. He's, this guy, Abraham does some really good things. He's the father of the faithful because he's a man of obedience in many areas in his life. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God brought me laughter, joy. Everyone who hears about this will laugh at me. Matter of fact, remember when God told her, she started laughing. So God says, name him Isaac, which means laughter. She'll always be reminded, you know, this is amazing that what God did for me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. Abraham, it says, was 100 years old. Can you imagine? The child grew and was weaned, and on his way, Isaac was weaned. And Abraham held a great feast. Wow. Big party. Celebrating the birth of this, prom excuse me, this promised son. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. That little tension going on right now. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Notice she doesn't even call her by her name. That, that's, that's kind of a clue. Does anybody pick up there's a little hostility here? You know, get rid of that slave woman and her son. Doesn't call him by his name. For that slave son will never share in the inheritance with my son. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. So Abraham is not a happy camper. He's conflicted. And we're going to look into why he's so conflicted. Well, part of it is this is actually his second wife. And this is his son. And there's tension between the two families. And Abraham is in the middle. All right? So he's not having a happy day. I can tell you that right now. So let's take a look here what happened that caused this great grief in their life. Let's go back a little bit of time to chapter 16. We'll pick up the story. Hagar is the slave serving Sarah. Her, that's her, the lady that she's waiting on. And Sarah can't have any children. Chapter 15, God promises Abraham he'll have a heir from himself. And Sarah, notice the names are going to change now because... Earlier, their names were Abram and Sarai. Now they're Abraham and Sarah because they now have a child. There's a lot of reasons for that. But let, let me just go back to the story. So in chapter 16, verse 4, he slept with Hagar because Sarah gave her maid, her servant, her slave, to Abraham to become a surrogate so that she could bear a child on her behalf, Sarah's behalf. He slept with Hagar, she conceived, and when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She thought, hey, listen, I got, I, I'm the one that's carrying this baby, you know? And it says, then Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Now she's mad at Abraham. Okay, guys, I know. You're looking around, you're going, hey, what, wait a minute. You're the one that started this. I mean, he could have said that, but he didn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. One of Abraham's problems we're going to find out is he probably doesn't speak up when he needs to. We're going to see what's, what's, what's going to happen as a result of that. He says, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put, I put my slave, she acknowledges that, in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you, not the slave girl, you, Abraham, and me. So she's not happy with her husband. How many know this is not a comfortable place to be living right now? Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. In other words, 
I'm checking out. I'm not going to deal with this problem. You just deal with it. And the Bible says she mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. It's very interesting, that word fled from her. It's the same word as when the Israelites fled from the Egyptians out of slavery. So she was being mistreated. Now, if we were to stop here, it's an interesting story, but we don't quite get it. So let me go back in time to the fertility practices of the ancient world. How many think that might be important to understand where these people are coming from? Because when you read it, it doesn't even make sense to us because we can't even relate to what's going on here. But in the Hammurabi Code, which is a Babylonian law code, which was what in the time of Abraham, and all of these ancient Near Eastern peoples were probably practicing these uh, fertility rites and codes and all the rest of it, there was a law that if a woman couldn't give birth to a child, she was obligated to give to her husband a female slave so that the husband would have a line of descent. Are we following this? This is the law. This is part of the culture. You know, we're going, well, I don't relate to that. Yeah, because you live in a different culture with different laws, but that was their law back then. That's why she said she was blaming him because that was the law. She felt restricted. She had to do it in her mind, all right? So it would appear, uh, this is uh, Victor Hamilton. He's a scholar. He says, it would appear that Sarai's options are limited. Either she may choose to remain barren for the remainder of her life or until, or until, what? Yahweh changes her circumstances. Oh, by the way, isn't that what God did? Yeah, he did. But she jumped the gun. She thought this is never going to change, Right? Even though God had said something to Abraham, I'm sure he said something to Sarah, but it's not happening. Everybody follow what's going on. So a promise is made, but it's not being fulfilled. And how many know, have you ever had God make you a promise and then it doesn't happen? Five years go by, 10 years go by, 15 years go by, 20 years go by, 25 years go by. Time can go by before God feels obligated to do what he says he's gonna do. We're hung up on time. God is not hung up on time. Anybody figured that out with God? He's just not uptight about time. We are. Or assuming that her condition is permanent one, she may present Hagar to Abram, who will bear children on her behalf. But given the emphasis on the indispensability of a male progeny to per perpetuate the family line, I'm inclined to think that Sarai's actions was obligatory and that no enigma was attached to such a procedure. In other words, she wasn't at fault. She was just following what was legally obligated for her to do. Okay, so that's the cultural understanding. But, you know, there's other commentators, and how many recognize that the Bible kind of has two narrators? There's the human person telling the story, but there's a narrator that we all know is what God thinks. It's this unseen voice. You're kind of reading between the lines. You get a feeling sometimes what God thinks about things when you're reading the story. And Gordon Wenham is another commentator, and he says this about how she handles the problem that she's facing. He says, given the social mores of the ancient Near East, Sarai's suggestion was a perfectly proper and respectable course of action. In other words, this is what people did. She's not disputing that. But then he goes on and says this, it is therefore understandable when some commentators like Westerman suppose that the author of Genesis approved of her action. Yet a close reading of the text suggests that von Rad and Zimmerli, these are other commentators, are right to hold that the narrator regards their actions as a great mistake. So there's an argument between scholars, right? Can you see that? And this is why. He said, 
This is the first, there is first a general consideration that Sarai's proposal seems to be the normal human response to the problem of childlessness in the ancient world, whereas the promise of a real heir in 15.4 suggests that something abnormal would happen. Now, why would God want to have the story of a woman who was barren all of a sudden supernaturally have a child? Why would that be important to God to begin to plant that idea right from the very beginning? Well, because God was planning on doing something pretty significant down the road called having a baby in a virgin. How many see that? The birth of Christ, the birth of the Redeemer. So he's already preparing that idea way back here in the Bible. The seeds of that idea are planted way back here. And you can see that storyline playing itself out over and over again. Hannah couldn't have a child. Remember, she's praying. See, there's that storyline where God supernaturally helps people have this supernatural baby. It's to prepare us for that one. Second, the way in which Sarai takes the initiative to solve the problem instead of waiting for the Lord's intervention kind of smacks of Abram's approach in 12, 10 to 20, where in that difficult situation, he calls Sarai his sister. In other words, what is he saying here? He's saying that often as human beings, we take things into our own hands. How many know we do that? We get in a little pressure, and Abraham thought, you know, she's so beautiful, my wife, I'm traveling through this area, somebody will want to, you know, some powerful person want to take her as his wife, he'll just kill me. So he just says, well, I'll just tell them he's, she's my sister. And technically, she kind of was, you know, she was his half-sister. So, He's, he's lying so he doesn't have to deal with the problem. Are you getting a feeling that he's going to do what's convenient? I get a feeling, you know, I'm not trying to put Abraham down. Uh, we all like to slide a little bit. If this is convenient, we'll just move this way because we don't like awkward and difficult and possibly dangerous situations. So we might choose to do that. And Abraham did. Problematic. Third, the close attention to the wording in verses two and three suggests the narrator's disapproval. For it clearly alludes to Genesis three where Abram obeyed his wife. And he, he does what Sarai suggests. He does, in verse three of chapter 16, he obeys Sarah's suggestion and he takes Hagar. Okay, now, what's very fascinating is Abraham, by taking Hagar, is actually, in a sense, disobeying God. He's not waiting for God to do what needs to be done. Uh, and so Abraham now, well, let me, let me go a little further, and it's interesting. Remember the story in the very beginning when a woman named Eve handed a forbidden fruit to a guy named Adam? Remember that story? And it says, and she gave him the fruit. Remember that? And she gave him. That wording is the identical wording is right here. Sarai gave her handmaiden. Only time in the Bible. See, when you're a Hebrew person, you're listening to this wording, you're realizing this is an allusion to the fall. This is a portrait that's showing you this is not a good thing to be doing. And the fact that Adam took the forbidden fruit, Eve was deceived. Adam knew full well what he was doing. He took it, remember? Remember that story? How many know that story? Okay. Good, I'm, I just want to make sure you're following here. It's very powerful, isn't it? So he takes the fruit and he eats it. Abraham is taking the fruit and he's eating it, in a sense. But it's going to cost. How many know that when Adam did that, everything changed? When Abraham did this, everything changed. The whole dynamics of their life changed. They opened up a new 
dynamic in their family. How many say that's true? They did do that. And so now she's upset. And so what does Abraham do? Uh, well, the fact, it says it right here that he obeyed, literally listened to the voice. That's the actual Hebrew. It occurs here in Genesis 3.17 would be suggested on its own. That this is more than a chance delusion to the fall seems to be confirmed by verse 3 where further echoes of that narrative are found where she obeyed, where he obeyed. Now, Abraham's response is interesting. Uh, he tries to mollify his wife by reaffirming her authority over her maid. Whether he was justified in simply reasserting the status quo is more dubious for Hagar for now his wife and the mother of his child and therefore worthy of his protection. In other words, she's a second wife and he should have said, no, I can't do that. But he didn't. He did not negate Sarah's anger and the conflict now escalates to a new level. You know, we know the story. She ran off in the wilderness. Angel sent her back. So she's hanging around. So let's go now to the second movement here is the actual decision made that was really difficult for them to make. How many know most of us don't like making difficult decisions? How many say that's true? I don't like doing that. As a matter of fact, a lot of us, what we do is we let the circumstances define our lives. We don't make decisions. We just let, we just let it ride. And wherever the circumstance goes, we take that least road of resistance, you know, that least road of resistance. That's the way we make decisions. That's called defaulting. We default on decisions. Rather than, you know, have the courage to face the difficult things in front of us, many times we back away from it and we just let things ride. We let the circumstances determine what's going to happen. A lot of times that's painful because we're just buying, you know, whatever that circumstance is taking us and eventually we're going to have to live with that and a lot of people feel regret afterwards. Now, here in this situation, Abraham's house is not in order. How many go, that's true? It's a mess. There's a lot of underlying tension and anger and hurt and disappointment. It's simmering. It's like a, you know, something's cooking. It's simmering. It's simmering. It's just waiting for the right moment to ignite, the right situation to ignite it. And we see what happens. You know, domestic disharmony can make life almost unbearable, intolerable. It's painful. People live in it. It is difficult. Actually, Solomon talks about it. He's a guy who has a lot of experience with wives. Uh, he, he writes in Proverbs, he says, better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. You know? <laughs> then he, later on in the chapter, he says, it's better to live in a desert with, than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, before all you guys are hitting and elbowing your wives, you could change the gender. Because, you know, better to live in the desert than with a, 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 an angry quarrelsome and intimidating husband. Right? Come on now. It's getting real quiet now. I picked on the guys here. But it's true. Yeah. So the first thing that, that to bring in these situations, what should we be doing? We should be inviting God into the situation. What should, what should Abraham have done there? When, Hag when Sarai said to him, hey, why don't you take Hagar? He should have probably said, you know, I, don't f I feel like this is probably not the right decision for us as a family. I feel like maybe we should be doing some praying about it. I think we need to come into more of an agreement. I, I feel like God has something else there. You see, a lot of times in life, we just go along with somebody's suggestion, but when the other partner is not in, a, not in agreement, they don't want to have a conflict, they just kind of go along with it. 
That's not a good way to operate. It's better to say, you know, I just don't feel, I feel uneasy about this choice. Why don't we just wait and pray and let's get both on the same page so that when we move forward, we can live with the consequences of our decision. Isn't that an interesting thought? That would probably save a lot of heartache and a lot of relationships. But a lot of times we just get lazy and we just go, okay, fine, go ahead, do what you want. And then later on when it's bad, then we blame them. That's not a good operating principle. So what I'm saying is we've got to have a little more moral courage in our relationship and sit down and say, you know, we're making these decisions. You know, I know that you really feel strongly about this, but I don't feel, I don't feel as strongly about it. As a matter of fact, I feel the opposite. So maybe we ought to stop and start asking God. Because, you know, let me say something. It's not what you want or it's not what I want or what Patty wants. It's what God wants that matters. And what God wants is better for both of us. Even though he may send us on a very difficult journey together, we better make sure that we're on God's page. That's the most important thing. Now, God speaks into the situation. Aren't you glad God is in the story? How many are happy God's in the story? He's in the details, guys. There's a song out there. I like that song. I like those lines. It says, but God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Wait a minute, God. I'm confused. I listened to her last time. It got me in trouble. Well, here's what you need to hear. Sometimes God is using our spouse to speak into our lives too. So we need to, what am I trying to say? We need to know God. We need to know God's voice. We need to know the word of God. We need to know the will of God so that when we, we hear something, we go, yeah, that's what God would want us to do. You know, we could support these ideas. He said, no, you gotta listen to your wife here. I'm gonna help you out of your difficulty. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. God said, I want to create harmony in this situation. And this is not going to be a win-win. This is going to be a win-lose. But ultimately, I'm going to make it a win-win. Because God, when God is in the equation, he can even take our losses and make them wins. And I'm going to show you that. He says, I'm going to take the son of the slave into an, a, a, the son of the slave and I'm going to make him no, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he's your offspring. Isn't that beautiful? God says, listen, Abraham, don't be so distressed. I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation. I'm going to bless him. You know, sometimes as Christians, we're really funny. You know, we, we know that the Jewish people, that God chose them, but sometimes we see the Arab people as adversaries. And I'm going to just say something. I want to just knock that out of her thinking. They're, they're, God, they're Abraham's children too. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a statement. God loves everybody. Have you read that? And the only reason he chose the Jewish people was so that they could actually reveal God to the other nations. We've got to get that straight in our mind. So God's not against these people. He's going to make him a great nation. But you know, then you have the challenge of belief. Doing what God wants is not always the easy thing to do. How many have discovered that? Have you ever had those moments in your life when you wanted to do something and God wanted you to do something else? Well, let me put it this way. The Bible told you to do something and you wanted to disobey the Bible. Maybe that's a lot clearer for some of us. And you're fighting with it. And I'm saying, don't listen to your emotions or whatever reasoning you have over here. Just listen to what God has to say because the moment you do this, it's gonna be painful. Not initially, but ultimately, it's gonna cause a lot of grief and pain. You're gonna suffer for as a result of it. If you do this, eventually, your little emotions and thinking are gonna come over here and you're gonna go, God, that was a great idea. I'm so glad I listened to you. I can look back on hindsight and go, man, you saved me a lot of heartache. Obedience is a powerful thing. You know one good thing about Abraham? When God spoke to him, he always did it immediately. It says, early the next morning, 
I've read this twice in his life. God's challenging him. He goes, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. He made sure they were provided for. Wow. So, what was the results of all of this? Well, here's the results. Well, for Abraham and Sarah, things got quiet at the house. There wasn't this constant conflict going on. How many see that? Now he's down to one wife and one kid instead of two wives and two kids. And they were fighting with each other. He's, he's, that, that, that made that problem disappear in a hurry. But what about Hagar and Ishmael? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's take a look at what happened to them. Because, you know, poor Hagar, think about it. She's a slave. She never had a say in any of it. She was thrown to Abraham. She couldn't say no. She's a slave. And then she's kicked out of the house. How fair was that? How many people feel a little, little bit more empathy for Hagar? I do. I just go, man, all of a sudden she's a single mom. Can you imagine being a single mom? She's got a kid. He's 13 years old. Tough age to lose your dad. How many say that's true? Do all the studying. 13, that's a tough age to lose a father. So they're heading out into the wilderness here. The Bible says here, she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Now why did she do this? Because they'd run out of water and she thought he was going to die. She didn't want to see it. She was in terrible shape now. I can just imagine the distress she was in, all the difficulties. You know, nothing was working out in her life. How many can, how many can almost feel for her? I get a feeling when she's under that bush. Look, look at verse 16. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. Is this, a, is this a painful moment? How many go, this is awful. This is a terrible situation. And I could think she, she might even be angry. Do you think Hagar was a bit angry? Probably. Do you think that she was distressed? Obviously. I mean, she's crying. She began sobbing. This is a terrible moment. Doesn't look like this is the win for Hagar. This is terrible stuff happening to her. I mean, maybe in her mind she's going, I can't stand those guys. I can't believe what they did to me. I can't believe all that's come down to me. The only good thing that's my son here, now he's dying over there. And Abraham has the gall to tell me that God's going to make a great nation out of him. Look, we're out of water and my kid's going to die. But God is in the story. God is in the story. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying. Oh, beautiful. The little 13-year-old boy was crying. And because he's a son of Abraham, God had made a promise that God would bless all the descendants of Abraham, including Ishmael. God heard his prayer. You know, Ola, we were praying for early morning service, and he said something beautiful. He said, Ishmael was the son of the covenant. He, had, he was in covenant relationship because of his dad. You and I are in covenant relationship because of Jesus. When you and I cry, God hears us. When we cry, God hears our cry. Isn't this beautiful? Wow. And, he, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Well, that would have been an experience. How many go, I'm hearing God talk audibly. This is amazing. And he said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. You know, I, I, I said to myself, you know, fear, think about what fear is. Fear is an absence of faith. Isn't that true? We've allowed 
our fears to define us, to control us, but we're not trusting God. We're not believing his promises. She probably felt mocked. She probably felt like the words that Abraham said were kind of haunting her. I'm looking at my kid. He's about to die. Abraham said God promised that he'd be a great nation, but I don't see it. God says, listen, don't be afraid. God's heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now she hears the promise of God right from the voice of God himself. And the Bible says, then God opened her eyes. Oh, can I just say something this morning? When you and I are in pain, when you and I are in distress, when you and I can't figure out what the answer is to the problem, we're blind. We can't see God's provision. We can't see God's promises anymore. We've lost something. He opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that well just popped there? I think it was there the whole time. I think she was so distraught and so in a terrible frame of mind she couldn't even see that God had a provision for her and it was right in front of her. And I think that's true in our lives. You and I get so distraught, so caught up, so messed up, so frazzled, you know, so full of insecurity, so full of fear. We just, we can't see that right in front of us there's a well. There's a well of salvation. There's a well that speaks of deliverance for us. She gave, she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Isn't that beautiful? His life was spared. I think our problems, pain, and perspective blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the real realities. But when she saw, when she saw, when she saw God, when she heard God, when she saw what he had done for her, something powerful happened. Do you know, God is there for us. I want to close at this. He's there for us when we feel rejected. He's there for us in our sorrow. He's there for us in our difficulty. He's there for us in our perplexity. He's there for us in our need. There is a well of life in the place of death. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And what was the end result? Exactly as God promised Abraham and Hagar. God was with the boy. God was with the boy. And he grew up and he lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife from, for him from Egypt. You cannot be a great nation without having a family. And God provided a family. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't this a good story? Don't you love the way it's turning out? His God, it, looked, it didn't look good for Hagar for a bit, the single mom. But God says, I'll be with the boy. I will be his father. You know, Paul Reich was here Tuesday at our prayer meeting. He shared a beautiful thought. He said, I did a little study in all the places where God was with people. And everywhere God is with people, amazing things happen. God was with Ishmael. See, we don't always hear that, do we? But God was with Ishmael and made him a great nation. It's amazing. What does God say to you? He will never leave us nor forsake us. God is with you. God is with you. Say it to yourself, God is with me. God is with me. Do you get it? Are you hearing it? Are you receiving it? Let's stand. Where are you today? A place of conflict? A difficult decision needs to be made. Maybe you're in a place of rejection, a place of destitution. We need to hear from God. 
We need to find out what he wants us to do, even though it may be difficult. And maybe you're wondering about God's promises today or his provisions. Maybe you've lost sight of God. Your problem seems to you the greater reality than God's goodness. I want you to hear the voice of God today. I pray he opens your eyes today that there is a well of salvation, a well of blessing, a well of deliverance. I want you to get up from your weeping and begin to bless those around you. You know, sometimes we get so focused in on ourselves and our pain and our problem. Look up. There are people around you. They're crying. They're just as thirsty. If you and I will hear God's voice and see God's provision, we'll be able to have something to bring to them. You know, I believe God is speaking to hearts this morning with every head bowed right now. Listen to me very carefully. You see, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God is already putting stuff inside of your hearts. Even as I was preaching God's word, you were, something was rising up within you. God was speaking to you. God was speaking to you this morning. Did you hear his voice? Did you hear his promise? Did he get you to see the well? How many here say, you know what, Pastor, as you were preaching today, God's spirit was talking to me. That's you. Just raise your hand. That was you this morning. God was speaking right into your spirit. Beautiful. See, people's hands are going up. It's amazing. Isn't that great? We can just receive what God has for us. Lord, today, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the people that are listening to this message. Lord, that we can receive life from you rather than death. We can receive hope rather than despair. We can receive peace rather than conflict. Your spirit is making yourself real. Lord, if we will call out to you, your word says, if we will call out to you, you will listen. I love that. If we're genuine in our heart, we're saying, Lord, I need you. I want to know you. I need your, my, your help right now in my life. You will come to us. You will speak into our lives powerfully. You will be a great help in our time of need. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.